Well, welcome back, and this is the fifth Sunday of Lent, and we're back to the theme we opened up our uh, observance of Lent with, and that is story saturating. Uh, the overarching theme of this uh, series has been uh, a shared revitalization journey. This idea that we've been through this crazy topsy-turvy uh, year, and that right now, uh, while there's a sense of optimism in the air, there's also, I believe, a deeper invitation where God is inviting us as a community on a journey to uh, go deeper in our relationship with him and our understanding with him in a such way in such a way that impacts how we connect with this world and how our community connects uh, to the greater community around us and what kind of things may come of that. So uh, the first part of that is story saturating. The idea that if God wanted to give us a rule book, he wouldn't have given us a narrative. He gives us a story, and it's a story that can infect us, replicate within us, and form us to be like Jesus. And uh, uh, any other way of approaching scriptures or approaching our faith can actually do tremendous damage. So getting back to saturating in the story of Jesus. And second to that, this idea of acceptance and intimacy that uh, no matter how old and how mature we get, we can never... Uh, completely grasp how much God loves us. And to the greater extent that we grow in our awareness of God's love, that empowers us to be a more loving people, which goes to our third theme. Uh, you know, we have stories, story saturating, we have acceptance and intimacy. And our third theme is empowered to love anyone, enemies included. This idea, uh, specifically enemy love, because if we learn to love our enemies, then automatically we level up in every other area of love as well. And this past year, this past several years, this divisive season in America, in the world, whether it's politics, pandemic, and everything else, most people have a list of people or a group of people or a stereotype of a person they see as the enemy. And the real uh, emphasis of following Jesus is to love our enemies, to commit to enemy love. That is a specific hallmark of the Jesus-saturated life. And uh, finally, our fourth theme uh, we talked about last week is empathy and action. This idea that we want to engage suffering and speak out against injustice in our community and see what that uh, looks like uh, in Columbus and kind of do some uh, group brainstorming uh, regarding uh, how we can be a merciful presence in this city with empathy and action. And last week we talked about becoming kingdom artists, kingdom entrepreneurs, in kingdom agitators. And reclaiming the word agitator is a pejorative term used against people speaking out against injustice. Uh, to agitation is a process when you're doing your laundry where you uh, agitate the water and the soap into the fabric so you can clean the stain out. And we believe that uh, the stain of injustice in our nation, the stain of racism, is something that God uh, 
wants to use us to agitate and bring his cleansing presence to lift that stain out. So uh, story saturation, acceptance and intimacy, empowered to love everyone, and empathy and action. So uh, story saturating this week, specifically, uh, I want to connect the importance of approaching our faith as learning to live within a story um, in light of the tragic shootings and murders that took place in Woodstock, uh, Georgia, that uh, a young 20-year-old uh, man who would identify as a Christian uh, took out, I, I believe, uh, murdered seven people, six of which were of Asian descent, and uh, had a specific rationale for why he was doing that. And it illuminates uh, the dangers, I think, that occur within fundamentalist rule-based Christianity that neglects the narrative and the character and the person and the themes that Jesus offers. So we're going to uh, do some heavy lifting today, but I think uh, it will equip us to lighten not only our burdens, but the burdens of others as well. So I'll pray and we'll dive right in. Uh, Father God, we uh, just ask for your merciful presence right now, Father, your merciful presence to uh, draw us into your love. Lord, as we see all the hate around us, as we see all the injustice, as we sometimes even come to grips with the hate in our own hearts, God, I pray that instead of slipping into shame, you would invite us into a healing journey as you uh, continue to invite us closer to you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. So one way that theologians kind of describe the narrative of the scriptures and both Old and New Testament is the kingdom of God. And uh, in the New Testament that Jesus is revealed to be the human incarnation of that king. And the kingdom of God is not so much about real estate uh, castles and crusades. The kingdom of God is actually about a good and beautiful benevolent king who uh, has a way of doing life and has a way of valuing people and valuing his creation and making all things new and that people who are caught up in the story of his kingdom become formed into being a redemptive presence like that. Now, talking about kingdoms, there's so many different concepts of kingdom floating around. So here, here's a couple. Uh, uh, philosophies of kingdom or different ways of uh, having a kingdom. You have an absolute kingdom, a uh, Chinese legalist kingdom, a composite kingdom, a constitutional kingdom, a crowned republic, a diarchy, a dual kingdom, an ethnarch, federal kingdom, hereditary kingdom, personal union, a non-sovereign kingdom, a popular kingdom, uh, regencies and co-regencies, tetrarchs, triarchies, a universal kingdom. And I would add, you have Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom, uh, the Lion King, the Animal Kingdom. And uh, for those of you like Carl, who like Terry Pratchett, you have the Agitian uh, Kingdom and the, the Ankh-Morpark Monarchy Kingdom. But 
in many of these kingdoms, you could uh, just go to the Wikipedia article and you would see a list of all the specific uh, attributes of those kingdoms. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, we primarily have a story. And when Jesus would talk about his kingdom, most of the time he would begin those discussions this way. He would say, the kingdom of God is like, and then he would tell a story or share an illustration. In fact, the vast majority of Jesus's stories to describe his kingdom don't have kings in the story with one or two exceptions, but they're just, a lot of them are actually agrarian stories or stories of people on the uh, bottom runs of the ladder of life trying to navigate hardship. And so uh, Jesus, though in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, 33, said, Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, saying that our first thing, our first priority, our first loyalty is to seek the kingdom of God. Every ounce of patriotic fervor in the true Christ follower goes towards seeking this royal kingdom up and above and beyond any earthly kingdom that, or uh, government that we now uh, interact with. Jesus wants all of our passion. In this uh, Matthew 6.33, seek first God's kingdom, and then if we seek the kingdom, we start with the teachings of Jesus. We see the kingdom as a story. Not only is it stories Jesus told, but it's the story he lived, where he embraced the outcast, where he spoke truth to power, where uh, he called out those that would oppress people, and he comforted those who were oppressed. A lot of people in Western culture approach uh, any faith they may have or philosophy they have as a set of treatises, as a set of facts, theorems, proofs, uh, commandments. And certainly the scriptures give us uh, many uh, different commands. Certainly the scriptures uh, describe a lot of things that we should be engaging in or shouldn't be engaging in. But primarily, the scripture is not a rule book. The scripture is a story. So the very idea that the word of God is given us, given to us to help us find God, know God, experience God, experience his love, and go live uh, God-infused lives. And that happens, starts out with by reading these stories. Yet, there are so many uh, kind of twisted or somewhat corrupted versions of Christianity that sublimate the story to timeless truths and rules to follow or systems. And uh, systems aren't necessarily bad for understanding our beliefs and our faith, but the system always is a footnote to the story. The story is not a footnote to your system. The system is always a footnote to the narrative. Uh, we can argue about rules. You can, uh, I, I've had uh, uh, conversations where people just want to debate uh, 
an understanding of a specific passage of scripture, but it never actually goes to the personal story level or why is this important? What is at stake? Why are you passionate about it? Why should I be passionate about it? It just sticks in this ethereal philosophical argument instead of the story of what we're wrestling with, what we're relating to. But with stories, when we have stories, we play them out in our imagination. We can reenact stories in our imagination. And in our day-by-day lives, we can riff off those stories that have infused us. And this is going to seem like a radical topic shift, but we had this tragic shooting, uh, this tragic murder, series of murders in Woodstock, Georgia, uh, last Tuesday. A 21-year-old white man who identified as an evangelical Christian who would have said they were passionate for their faith, who would have described himself as being someone that over anything wanted to be pure and holy. And he ends up being a mass murderer. Guys, this didn't just happen. This wasn't just someone having a bad day. This is someone at a fundamental, primal level, not understanding Jesus, not getting Jesus. And the question is, you know, people say, well, is he really Christian? And when people say, is he a Christian, what they usually mean, or is she a Christian, are they saved? Are they going to heaven when they die? How about we take those questions off the table? And let's say only God knows what's going on internally with someone's life. And what if we would uh, talk, separate this idea of being a Christian from being saved? Being saved is about our eternal destiny, but to be a Christian would be someone who is obsessed with Christ and wants to know everything about Christ and have Christ have complete reign and rule over our lives, inspiring us to acts of beauty, acts of courage, acts of compassion. That Christian meant Christ-obsessed versus purity-obsessed. We had a young man here who was uh, purity obsessed. And specifically, apparently he described himself as a sex addict, a pornography addict. Uh, uh, He described himself as uh, going to these uh, massage parlors because he got off on it. Now this, uh, this young man, in order to stop these temptations that were besetting him, he decided to kill those he thought responsible for his temptation. That was people at these massage parlors. Uh, Six out of seven were uh, identified as Asian, and he murdered them. My friends, we are responsible for our actions, no one else. And this person blame-shifting his behavior onto the, these precious people who were beloved of God, and he snuffed their lives out in the most traumatic, violent way imaginable. He saw them as a threat to his purity. He blame-shifted. Now, if we primarily marinate in the story 
of the scriptures, the very first story that involved humans in the story in scriptures, the creation story, Adam and Eve story. At the heart of the story of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, the first man, first woman is blame shifting where a man, Adam, blames his bad behavior on his wife, Eve, as much to say as, well, it's the woman you gave me. We have a man pushing off responsibility on a woman instead of owning up. And that's one of the first story beats of the first stories where humans are involved is blame shifting. And we see sin entering into the world through this. And fast forward, we have this young man who blames his issue with lust, pornography, sex addiction, addiction, objectification on these women, and he murders them. But he was obsessed with purity or what was known among a lot of Christians is purity culture. You, that idea, uh, maybe there, there are some good ideas within purity culture, but divorced from the love of Christ and purity divorced from the story of Jesus in the ways of Jesus, purity divorced from the manner of Jesus and the personality of Jesus is not purity. This idea that uh, in, in purity culture, we worship institutions and rules instead of pursue a God that, in a savior who can heal us and make us pure. Uh, I love, love the idea of sexual intimacy being held in the highest of esteem as a gift from God that is uh, intended to be enjoyed within a lifelong commitment and covenant centered on the unconditional love of Jesus Christ and loving one another. And honestly, I think one of the most damaging things in our culture is sexual intimacy outside of a context of unconditional love and commitment. But that comes from a view of humans formed by seeing how Jesus loved people. Where people saw objects, Jesus saw friends. Where Jesus saw, where people saw objects or possessions, people, Jesus saw precious people. People saw an infectious leper. Jesus saw someone that needed a hug and some healing. People saw a prostitute. Jesus saw a sister. You know, Jesus saw a potential friend. I think of this idea that Jesus actually, in the ancient Near East, super patriarchal culture, two of his closest friends, Mary and Martha, were women. In the ancient Near Eastern patriarchal culture, Jesus, a single man, has two of his closest buddies are women. How's that for a countercultural savior? Uh, if Jesus were to run into someone or if Jesus were to pass by a prostitute on the street who was uh, trying to entice him into a sexual and financial transaction, Jesus would not look at that person as uh an object of hate, Jesus will look at that person through merciful eyes and have a vision for that person to be restored to experiencing a life of being fully alive, not being an object to satisfy other people's lusts 
and desires. But purity culture values purity over precious people because it doesn't have Jesus in it. And this uh, scapegoating of women is something I've seen in various parts of the church in different parts that I've been involved in. Uh, I often heard in high school about the women being uh, uh, exhorted not to attract undue attention to themselves by the way they dress and act. But it was kind of weird to hear uh, men, male uh, people, talk to women telling them it's their job to help them be pure. And I'm, I'm, listen, I love modesty. I love modesty, and I hate the idea that people feel the need to flaunt their wares in order to find meaning or depth. But the idea that what some other person or a woman does or it is responsible for making me act a certain way. Listen, if we seek first God's kingdom, we seek Jesus. And Jesus builds within us an anthropology of precious humanity. And that means no matter how someone is dressed, no matter whether someone is trying to be enticing or not, the overriding idea in our heart is that this person is precious and unconditionally loved by God. And that sublimates anything else. This... Um, Rule-centric faith treats people like objects, objects that are either uh, good or bad. Uh, Rule-centered faith uh, looks upon people and say, are they going to help me follow the rules or are they going to cause me to violate the rules? But a relational faith, a Jesus-centered faith, is one where we experience love and we express love to others. And I, this a man who murdered these uh, precious people, these precious people, merely saw them as uh, a negative influence on the balance sheet of his life and sought to murder him and became, in effect, uh, a manifestation of Satan, of the devil, you know, the... the, the uh, the devil comes, seeks to destroy like a, a lion prowling, seeking who he can devour. This person became a devouring presence. In his effort to be pure, he emulated the devil. So when we talk, when I talk about a story-centric, story saturation, narrative theology, this matters, friends. This really matters because if we, a checklist orientation divorces us from the influence of Jesus. And we miss the plot. We put purity over the preciousness of people. And I've done this. I've caused pain on people. I've judged people because I was obsessed with figuring out whether they were in the right or in the wrong instead of seeing where they are suffering and imagining how God could be present to them in that suffering. I've had to make amends to many people over the years for my personal sense of legalism and judgmentalism. 
And it's still something I battle with. I think humans have a propensity to try to label and categorize people. I want to give you a real positive alternative to looking at people and seeing their flaws, seeing their shortcomings, uh, to being tempted to judge them. I'm not advocating that we live in denial or we see everyone through rose-colored glasses or we just have a kind of a Pollyanna, hyper-positive view of everything. But I do think one element of our interaction with other humans should be to recognize the themes of Jesus manifest in their life, even and especially if they don't know about Jesus or don't believe in Jesus or have not experienced the love of Jesus. What is so amazing to me is I can interact with someone who believes their entire existence is due to random chance and that there is no purpose, there's no design, and there is no greater overarching meta theme or story about their lives. They just think we're here, we're born, we live and died. All we are is dust in the wind. People who think that life is essentially meaningless and we're just the smartest of animals. Yet in those people, I'll see in those self-same people who think we're here because of random chance, commit their lives to care for the poor, commit their lives to work for justice, to be passionate about the care of people, to be passionate about generosity, to be passionate about addressing the plights, uh, plight of immigrants and those who are ill and the starving and people across the world who they may never meet who are enduring oppression and hardship. Yet they think people are, are just random chance. Because I see this Jesus trope of valuing human life manifest in people that don't have a story to go along with why they care. And something that has really uh, been healing for me, instead of meditating on how far gone people are, is to notice what God is already doing in their life. And what it means to share the good news, to share the gospel, to share my faith, to witness, means to recognize what God is already doing with someone, have a conversation with them, share with them what I see of Jesus in them and explain to them why. Or to be transparent about my own bumpy journey of faith and where I need grace and forgiveness and kindness. That sense of vulnerability to recognize Jesus tropes in people and then ask, where did that come from? Um, John chapter one, one of the four gospels said, uh, calls Jesus the Logos. It says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And in uh, the Greek world, when people use the word Logos, word, that was a real pregnant term. Uh, Greek philosopher Aristotle uh, defined uh, the term Logos in his uh, book on rhetoric as reasoned discourse in public speaking. And he considered, uh, you know, Lagos was part of the three keys to persuasion, ethos, pathos, and Lagos. But Lagos was a reasoned 
discussion aimed at persuasion. And the reason discussion aimed at persuasion is a winsome and attractive savior in the person of Jesus, where his life inspires us to unite with him, to have a relation with him, relationship with him, to give our lives over in fealty to him as king. That the persuasion of Jesus is not is the story of Jesus. And in most people, we see inklings of that story already manifesting. So in some ways, uh, all of us exhibit strong Jesus themes. In other ways, we have other arenas of our life that may be so far removed from Jesus. I, I look at a uh, thing, I mean, I think God is so patient with us that he reveals little by little as we kind of go through these stories over and over and are, do our best by the power of the Holy Spirit to live them out, little by little, God brings up things in our life that need a healing, redirection, adjustment, forgiveness, redemption, and restoration. But he shows us, generally I found out, people bring up all of our issues at once. God usually brings up issues gently, one issue at a time. God is the patient, slow-moving God. It's people that will, uh, you know, dump truck you with everything you're doing that's wrong. But God has the long view in mind of a lifetime journey of healing and strengthening, fortification and sanctification and beautifying and restoration and renovation. That's a lifetime deal. And God's not in a hurry. God is not in a hurry. He's more concerned that uh, you experience his love and know that you're loved than you become perfect right away. Or he would he would give us an app for that. If he wanted us, if he wanted us to not have a relational evolution in our life where we grow in strength and holiness as we relate to God, if he uh, he could have just zapped us, but instead he gave us a story. And he gave us the Holy Spirit of God to empower our imaginations and our willpower. So um, one way uh, one way that I think this can help us, and this ties into uh, our other theme of loving our enemies uh, or loving our ideological opponents, is oftentimes I... Uh, find people or loved ones or people within my circles that I profoundly disagree with them on a matter of public policy. I, for instance, uh, the more and more I read, especially the prophets and the story of Israel, the more I see that God, one way people who've received God's love are called to live out God's love is showing extravagant, crazy, loving welcome to immigrants, to refugees, uh, to the fatherless and the widow, angling the stranger, to the stateless, a theme over and over and over is taking displaced people and giving them home. In one way, that has personally impacted my life, personally on a policy level, is I tend to favor policies that put welcome over and above safety or security. 
I think the greatest risk we face is not showing mercy when we have an opportunity to show mercy than accidentally showing too much kindness and, and mercy to someone who may not be deserving of it. And so when that comes to immigrants, I have a very much open welcoming, like, you know, my forebears uh, took this country away from its original inhabitants. I can't make that right, but I can be a part of a welcome crew for people who have been displaced by uh, poverty or crazy regimes. I think of, I think of uh, all the cartel violence uh, uh, in uh, Central and South America uh, that's perpetrated by groups that we teamed up with in the 1980s to fight communism. We helped these cartels get into shape. And there's people escaping dangerous places to come to the United States, to come to the United States uh, to find safety. And I just value policies that welcome them. And I'm not saying Republican or Democrat or any of this. I'm just saying at a policy level, I'm a big welcome guy. There's people I dearly love who I believe have an authentic and evolving relationship with Jesus that are really opposed to what I believe regarding immigration policy. And that's okay. We can have a loving argument about that. But if those people know Jesus, when given an opportunity to be face-to-face -face with an immigrant or given an opportunity to care for an immigrant or newcomer in our midst, we'll jump at the opportunity. I know people that may vote a certain way, but it would take almost no persuasion to ask them to give Central Vineyard money to help us uh, get another house for one good home that could provide housing for uh, homeless immigrants who are uh, falling between the cracks of the system. I, the people that may not have what I think is a merciful bent towards policy will part with their time, their talents, their cash, uh, and their friendship to minister to people in our midst. It's there's something when you have this abstraction of a law or a policy, it's easy to miss the boat. But when if you have the spirit of Jesus in you, and you encounter a person, and you've been encountering Jesus, it's that relationship where you can meet Jesus in that person where he changes you. So what I'm saying is, there are, if we can look and recognize the Jesus themes, wherever they may be, and maybe just the smallest spark, and someone we think has deplorable or harmful views, instead of hating those people or judging them or disliking them, we can find out where's that spark of Jesus? Where's that flame of Jesus? Where's the pilot light on that we can pour some fuel on? And it's amazing. I, my, so many of my strong opinions have been changed only after I had a relationship with someone and somehow my relationship with God and my relationship with that person became commingled to the point where I was able to love more effectively. So rule-based Christianity, purity culture, without Jesus' story saturating, it might kill somebody, as we saw this week. 
Lord, have mercy on those people, especially, uh, Lord Jesus, have mercy on our Asian brothers and sisters living in the United States who have been the subject of so much vitriolic, a vitriolic increasing sense of hatred among people in the last two years, God. Uh, racist attacks against uh, Asian folks have been on the uptick. God, teach us how to be merciful truth tellers. Make us instruments of your peace, I pray in the name of Jesus.